Hey folks, welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. I'm Jeff Salzman and I'm coming to you from my office here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. We had some technical trouble at the beginning of our live podcast on Tuesday, so I'm re-recording the first part of it here for this podcast. I want to thank you for listening in wherever you are. I hope you're well. And today I want to look at the State of the Union address by the U.S. President Obama. To our international friends, please forgive my American-centric focus tonight. But I do think we're witnessing an epochal shift to the next stage of economic development for the U.S. from the orange modern altitude to the green postmodern altitude. And it's worth noting. I'll explain in a minute. But before we get into it, I do want to give a shout out to IntegralLife.com, which is where the world's leading integral philosopher, Ken Wilber, publishes his latest work. They just released a wonderful excerpt of Ken talking about the qualities of the higher stages of consciousness, uh, turquoise and post-turquoise. It's called Supermind and the Primordial Avoidance. And like the Daily Evolver now, you can listen to the recording or read the transcript. They're behind the paywall at IntegralLife.com. And I just want to say in this moment that that is well worth it. A hundred bucks for a one-year subscription to Integral Life. Well, I just asked Siri, and she says that that's only $8.33333 per month. So it's a bargain. Uh, and Integral Life is how Ken and some very good people make a living. So it deserves your support, and it earns it. Okay, so back to President Obama and his sixth State of the Union address. The annual State of the Union, of course, is just that, an overview of where the president sees the nation and where he wants to lead it. Obama used this year's address to put forth primarily his economic message, which he presented in its most unvarnished form tonight. As he said at the end, with no more elections to campaign in, he's free to tell us exactly what he thinks. And I think he does, mostly, at least. Just to boil it down, I'd say that from an integral point of view, that in this speech, Obama is charting the course for the developmental leap from a modern orange altitude economy, which is where we are now, to a postmodern green altitude economy. He argued for policies such as free higher education for everyone who wants it, maternity leave and increased childcare, paid sick leave, extending health insurance to more people, that's Obamacare, higher minimum wage so that everybody who makes an effort can make a living. And he used that line. He also said, and I'm quoting here, he said, to everyone in this Congress who still refuses to raise the minimum wage, I say this, if you truly believe you could work full time and support a family on less than $15,000 a year, go try it. If not, vote to give millions of the hardest working people in America a raise. And then, of course, all of this is paid for by various higher taxes on the rich and particularly the super rich, the 1% and the 0.1%. Now, I know what many of you international listeners are thinking. Really? This is what you Americans are still working on? It's true. 
America is a good developmental half a stage or more behind other developed countries in regards to family care and even safety net issues. Fundamentally, Obama's economic vision is to catch up to what is already happening in other rich countries, particularly Western Europe. I saw elegant evidence of the difference between American and European thinking in a Pew poll this week, which asked people from both the United States and people from Germany, France, Britain, and Spain together, which is more important to them? The freedom to live your life without state interference or two, the security of having the state guarantee that everyone's basic needs are met. It turns out that the views of Americans and Europeans were perfect mirror images of each other on this basic security versus freedom polarity. Europeans chose security over freedom by 60% to 40%. Americans chose freedom over security by 60% to 40%. And thereby, we have it. Americans choose the modern orange system, which is more individual-oriented, over the green postmodern system, which focuses more on the community at large. And we see through history that uh, the economy oscillates between a more communal, tribal communal, red, more agentic, more individual-oriented, a blue or, or, or traditional, more collective-oriented, orange, more individual, green, more collective. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, of course, the Europeans have chosen more the green, which uh, focuses on security. Now, paradoxically, America's relative orangeness may be one reason for its economic success, which outpaces Europe's in two important ways. The first is America's long-term success. For over 70 years, America has had the richest middle class in the world. The rest of the developed world is gaining on us, but we're still out in front there. And that's been a long-term success. And I'd also point out our success in the short run as well, with America leading the developed world out of the Great Recession in terms of both growth and employment. But the inequitable distribution of America's wealth is too high. It just doesn't feel right when 90% of new wealth created by the economy is flowing to the top 2% of the citizens. That offends the moral sensibilities of modern and postmodern people. So, how do we solve this problem? We integrate. The way forward is to harmonize the polarities. And again, freedom and security are two of the most primary polarities in all of life. As we mature, we realize that it's not that we are to choose one or the other. It's that we are to see the wisdom in both poles and be ever more able to tease apart what is best about each. Using this thinking, we create a less ruthless meritocracy and a less stagnant collective. We develop more entrepreneurial flavor to government services and an ever more humane and flexible workspace provided by private companies. This integrated goal is to get to where people are free to move through their lives and make decisions for themselves and their families unencumbered by unnecessary rules and rulers. 
Yet, at the same time, people are connected to and supported by a meshwork of intelligent and responsive systems that catch them when they fall. At this point, when we've achieved this, we're talking about an integral economy. And of course, this is something we explore regularly on this podcast. I do think an, an economy like this is evolutionarily inevitable. It's just the natural consequence of smarter people and systems and leaders. And this is where Barack Obama comes in. One of the best ways to hear how a president really thinks is to read their big speeches. And to read Obama's speech is to feel the multi-perspectival flow of an integral mind. And here's just a couple quotes. He said from Tuesday's speech, if we're going to have arguments, let's have arguments, but let's make them debates worthy of this body and worthy of this country. We still may not agree on a woman's right to choose, abortion in this case, but surely we can agree it's a good thing that teen pregnancies and abortions are nearing all-time lows and that every woman should have access to the health care she needs. Yes, passions still fly in immigration, but surely we can all see something of ourselves in the striving young student and agree that no one benefits when a hardworking mom is taken from her child and that it's possible to shake a shape and that it's possible to shape a law that upholds our tradition as a nation of laws and our tradition as a nation of immigrants. We may have a different take on the events of Ferguson in New York, but surely we can understand a father who fears his son can't walk home without being harassed. And surely we can understand the wife who won't rest until the police officer she married walks through the front door at the end of his shift. This Obama, I'm telling you, is a perspective-taking machine. I was reminded of why I'm so happy that he's president by a voice message I received a couple hours ago from one of our young integral writers and poets, Zachary Fetter. He sums up in his own beautiful way what I and so many integralists feel about Obama. And here's Zachary speaking for himself. We both um, cherish the articulation and complexity holding of uh, Obama. And as I've been reading through this speech, I mean, in spite of everything, just stepping away from the whole theater and charade of it to whatever extent that it is, reading these words once again, I mean, this man and the speechwriters that are behind him, just so beautiful. Um, and I say this, you know, having not heard a single thing you've said, but I I'm sure just in terms of the heart and the sophistication and the nuance that comes behind pretty much every speech that certainly every major speech that I know he's delivered, I, I know you're going to be um, just heart open and, and in admiration, I think, um, as I am. So I just wanted to say how much I'm looking forward to the recording of your call coming out on the Daily Evolver and wanted to send you some, uh, some deep love and appreciation from myself and from Jagna. Um, in Germany. And yeah, looking forward to a 2015 that is filled with breakthrough and wonder. Thanks again and lots of love. Bye. Obama has been criticized, of course, because most of what he's recommending in the State of the Union has no chance of actually passing Congress. 
The pundit Jeffrey Goldberg accused him of trolling the Republicans. That is, poking at them, trying to provoke a response from them. Well, yeah, that is what he's doing. It's what a leader does. He sets the topic for the debate, and other people have to weigh in. We expect it now. Obama's done that in this speech, and he really put the pedal to the metal here. But not to worry. The Republicans have already gotten the message, at least those of them who are serious about winning elections. The 2016 Republican presidential hopefuls are all presenting plans that fight inequality in their platforms. Now, they're more given to private enterprise solutions, to be sure, but great, so be it. Again, this oscillation between what's private and what's public is one of the engines of evolution. May we fight our way forward ever faster. Okay, I think at this point we can patch into the recording from Tuesday night. As we enter the program, you'll see I'm about to explore the historical development of America's economic systems, starting with that faith, starting with that fateful encounter of the tribal altitude native peoples with the warrior altitude Europeans, and leading to what we have today, an integral president bringing postmodern thinking to a modern country. Have a listen. We can see that every developmental altitude has its own economic system. And it is a reflection of the natural forces of human development that come online at that stage and that create economies that mirror the values of every culture in time. And that starts with the dawn of, of humans. And this is, we're saying about maybe 200, 250,000 years ago. It's what we call the infrared altitude or the beige meme in spiral dynamics. And the economy at this stage was basically get through the day. We're looking for food, warmth, uh, keep our babies safe, uh, some of which live to continue to do it all over again. And this really basically is as complex as the economy gets at this stage of the game. And then we move into the second stage, or the tribal magenta purple meme, where we continue to emphasize survival, but it's more complex with longer timelines. In fact, people can see a season instead of a day or a week. We have differentiated functions among members of the tribe. We have the emergence of trade and bartering, but it's still very communal, uh, not fully differentiated, uh, there's a self-sacrificing allegiance to the tribe. And then we move, and we're again, we're moving quickly. We're now 200,000 years into humanity to about, you know, 40, 50,000 years ago, where we move into the red, or what we call the warrior or the empire stage of development. And this is a reassertion of the individualistic. If the tribal stage says something like, we are one, we are a group, we are the tribe. The red or the warrior stage of development says, I am powerful. I have agency within myself. This is the stage where the young warrior goes up against the chiefs or the tribal elders or the customs and basically moves into a plunder stage of development 
This is really the beginning of America. The economy in the first hundred years of America was basically full on red. Uh, we're talking enslavement, for heaven's sakes. This is where, you know, we had six million people uh, transported from Africa to the United States, sold in chains, children sold away from their parents, that sort of thing. Uh, the conquest of the Native Americans. And all through even the Civil War, when slavery ended and the really the marauding of the uh, Wild West began to end at that stage of the game, too, we move into a later red stage of development, which is, you know, some version of a big boss, uh, a, uh, a warlord, uh, some sort of empire building. And this is really what kicked in and flourished at the end of the Civil War through the late 1800s. This is the era of John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan. This is the turn of the century into the 20th century. Vanderbilt and this whole roster of robber barons who built these huge enterprises through, in many cases, the force of their own will. These are powerful, charismatic, you know, they're warlords, for heaven's sakes. They come out of nothing and build empires. There was no countervailing force. There was no um, government or labor power structures that kept them in check. And so we have then at the late 20s, 1920s, uh, a situation where the bottom 90% of America held just 16% of the wealth. And that was less than the 0.1%, the one-tenth of a percent held. And those folks held a quarter of the total wealth right before the crash of 1929. So at that point, with the Great Depression and the beginning of World War II, it gave us rise to an economy built on the values of the next stage of development, because that red stage uh, with the monopolies, with finally the you know creation of the Great Depression was a bust. That's when it came to bust, and that's how these stages often change. We move into the traditional stage, which in uh, the aqua model is the amber altitude in spiral dynamics, it's the blue meme. And this is where we have a renewed focus on the common good. And we move to a communal meme. And this is, in a certain way, a recapitulation. This is the pendulum swinging back to the communal and collective that we had in the tribal stage of development. So uh, this economic system seeks basically to rein in the excesses of the red exploitation using government regulation, taxation, labor movements, all of which grew enormously over the subsequent decades. Uh, this is the, the era of World War II, of great social goals such as building uh, infrastructure of highways, airports, seaports, going to the moon, supporting an educated middle class that exhibits good bourgeois values such as thrift, hard work, and the ability to delay gratification. It's also the beginning of the safety net of social security, child labor laws, a five-day work week, occupational safety. And this traditionalist economy, this 
blue meme or amber altitude economy was ascended during the post-war era until it eventually played itself out with the economic malaise, if you remember Jimmy Carter's famous phrase, in the mid-70s. And this is when taxes had spiked to 70 or 80% of income, inflation hit 20%, labor unions were proving to be as ruthless as the big bosses had been in the previous stages. And so we were in deep doo-doo back in the 70s, and that was the end of the, um, you know, just as the Depression ended the red economy, the malaise of the 70s, that stagflation of the 70s, ended the blue economy, and we elected a Ronald Reagan, which began a new stage of economic development that we would identify as being orange, which is based on the values of modernity. And this is, above all, freedom from government coercion. And again, a resurgence of this autonomy, of this agency, of this focus on the individual. And so tax rates uh, were cut to under 30%. Labor unions were busted. They certainly lost a lot of power uh, in the Reagan era. Uh, There was a new kind of laissez-faire government, deregulation, free trade. This was key. This was globalization. The whole idea here was that we were moving from a, you know, any kind of group identity, whether it be the Irish or the Italians or the whoever it was in these local politics, that there would be any kind of a tribal or any kind of an aristocratic, you know, legacy kind of uh, an economy where rich people's kids got into college, this sort of thing, this began to change. We moved into what is sacrosanct in orange, at least in theory and mostly in practice. I mean, these things happen in sort of a muddled mess, but there's center of gravities that we can identify. And one of the things we know about orange is that it is a meritocracy. It's the idea that anybody can get anywhere on the strength of his skills. And his skills gives you a little bit of a sense of what's still wrong with this view, because it doesn't include minorities, it doesn't include all of the women, it doesn't include all of the people who are left out by this meritocratic system. But we'll get to that in a second. It does work. There was a huge upside. The economy grew, inflation was tamed. And a new economy arose based on service, technology, and knowledge. And this was really the booster rocket of globalization. As trade barriers fell, and we're still talking about this modern age kicked off by Reagan, it was the beginning of the end, really, of traditional manufacturing in America, at least as we knew it. Because during Reagan's first term, America permanently lost over two and a half million manufacturing jobs. And wealth was redistributed. You know, redistributing wealth is something that's going on all the time. It's only pejorative when it's being redistributed away from your own interests. That's a little bit of a digression. But it was indeed at this time redistributed away from the working class and the middle class who were now competing with lower wage workers around the world. First it was manufacturing jobs, people in assembly lines. You realize that people in China can do assembly lines. 
And then it gets into even white collar jobs, traditionally white collar jobs, where things like customer service. Well, as long as people speak good English, as they do in India, uh, and they're happy to work for three to five dollars a day, then they take over. And then there's even moving into accounting and legal. And it's a orange globalized world. You know, the good news is there was a global consciousness in, in terms of dealing with people all over the globe. The problem was there was a blindness, and this is true of orange, of the interiors. So there's not really a, a valuing of the problems and suffering that's caused by these kinds of relocations. All right, let's just look at a couple other things about the orange stage. Well, um, we can see that, the, you know, the orange stage is either coming to an end or it's come to an end. We're not sure. This speech tonight would lead me to think that it's come to an end. And it's not just the speech, but, well, we know that since the 70s, 90% of the increase in wealth in the economy has gone to the top 2% of the population. So that means that the rest of the 98% get to share in what's left over, which is 10%. And in terms of actual wealth, that is net worth, the top 1% now own 40% of the wealth in the country. That begins to have a moral dimension. There is a morality to uh, individual freedom. This is what, you know, one of the great achievements of modernity. The idea that people can actually work in a system where they're free to make contracts with other people, agreements with other people, do whatever they want. They don't have to get approval from the king or the state or the priest or anybody. And that's a huge achievement that comes online at Orange. But again, Orange doesn't see that there's a certain super sorting mechanism that is online whereby people with the highest skills are just inordinately rewarded. So you have CEOs making many hundreds or thousands of times as much as their workers. Is that justified? Well, in a Michael Jordan kind of an economy where there are these superstars who actually have these skills that are, you know, one in a million, who can run companies like Michael Jordan can play basketball or Tom Brady can play football, then in a way it is justified. But we can feel our sort of moral uh, a moral response to this sense of, well, the um, paragraph from Vanity Fair, I think, is, it really hits on a good point. They write, the more divided a society becomes in terms of wealth, the more reluctant the wealthy become to spend money on common needs. The rich don't need to rely on government for parks or education or medical care or personal security. They can buy all these things for themselves. In the process, they become more distant from ordinary people, losing whatever empathy they may have once had. And so we can see that happening. And then we can also see that just as all of these memes seem to end with a certain kind of dysfunction, uh, the red ended with the depression, 
Uh, blue ended with the malaise of the 70s. And orange has certainly begun its end with the financial meltdown of 2008. So that means there's a natural move. There's a natural evolutionary power or potency at work in the cosmos. And we are riding these waves that mean that we are moving into a new stage. And this is where, and I'm not sure exactly what I think about where Obama is in here. I mean, he's, I think he's an integralist. I don't think he's necessarily self-consciously an integralist and that he knows of integral necessarily. But he thinks in a way that holds multiple perspectives. And so he can really operate in a number of stages, uh, including red military uh, and, you know, blue traditionalism, where he's talking about, I mean, he opened his talk tonight with this wonderful story of this young couple, Rebecca and Ben. Yeah, and they were newlyweds in 2008, and they had a hard time during the meltdown of 2008, but they've worked their way back. And so he has that sort of green thing. Uh, he also has, uh, you know, let's succeed. Let's lead the world. Let's uh, express ourselves. Let's be the best we can be that is characteristic of orange. And then in green, he is also bringing it. And so let me just describe a little bit of the green stage of development in terms of the economy. Uh, I think back on a, a talk that I had with Saeed Dalabani, who wrote the book Memonomics, and I had this talk with him about a year ago. And we were talking about how economics sort of is a lagging indicator in terms of the development of a culture. People can be artistically at modern or postmodern and still be economically and even in terms of government, in terms of the, you know, sort of the structures of the state can still be at blue or just beginning orange. Because in a sense, these are more, they're more fundamental. I was going to say they're more important. They're probably not more important, but they're more fundamental to our security and safety. People don't, you know, screw with their money. Uh, they're the most conservative they can be with their money. And so, as I said, the economy of a country is sort of the last thing that gets dragged into the new meme. So I wanted to just share a little bit about what Saeed said about the characteristics of a green economy. And he called it, in three words, the economy where we have a democratization of information. And he explains it as a rise of a new economy based on the values of the green postmodern meme. This is largely driven by technological innovations, the internet, social media, etc., that are replacing proprietary and secretive practices of past economic systems with open source and collaborative insights. And so, you know, what that means in a sentence is that the old top-down approach to the economy is over. Everybody is both a consumer and a producer in the new economy, or they can be if they want to be. And so we're really moving into a new realm where people have an opportunity to operate in an economy that is emphasizing thought. We're, we're really moving from 
the gross realm that we call it, or the physical realm, the material realm in integral theory, uh, you know, where it's just basically serving our needs and making sure we have food and shelter and warmth and clothing and all of that good stuff, to where we are working with ideas. And that's moving into what we would call the subtle realms. This is uh, the characteristic of the green mean. This is the beginning of that. And so we um, talk about things like communication. One of the things that Obama talked about tonight was uh, greater internet access. Uh, education, his proposals on a community college where, you know, the community college being free, be, being basically like year 13 and 14 of a public school. But these are the years where you really get training in the kind of job you want to do, the kind of career that you want to move into. And then also we're hearing things like uh, raising taxes on the rich, on inherited wealth, on capital gains. This is, would be a huge, huge shift. This would be a move back from the individual economics of the orange meme with Reagan back to more of a communal collective uh, orientation that we would have in the green meme. Also, green is known for its world centrism. So we are uh, aware of climate change. And he talked about his initiatives there. Um, the proposal to close Gitmo, which is a sort of a, a stain on our own honor and our own, you know, the, the story that we tell to the world about freedom and due process and law. And, and then his own story about um, growing up in Hawaii and not being red or blue and, um, and that uh, we're a country, the, we're the United States of America. He went back to some of these early themes of his uh, campaign in 2008. I thought he did a really good job. I thought it was actually one of the most, I, I mean, I'm susceptible to Obama. I, I get that. I have a lot of sort of receptors for his transmission. But with that said, I feel like we saw a new unleashed Obama tonight, uh, who's somebody who was with no more campaigns to run. And, and didn't you love that line at the end where he said, I have no more campaigns to run. And of course, the Republicans who hadn't clapped all night, you know, for anything, finally clapped. You know, he has no more campaigns to run. Uh, and then he, you know, with his sort of great, actually comedic timing in this case, he said, it's because I won the last two. <laughs> and then he winked. And I thought that was, you know, I, I like seeing that. Anyway, what I want to say just to um, sort of wrap up, you know, where we are and where we might be going. And then I'll take comments and questions. I'd like to hear what anybody thought about the talk and, and or the, the, you know, the, the speech tonight. And, uh, you know, anything else that's come up for you. And so if, to do that, you can press one and you can start doing that now. I'll just close by saying that, you know, the way we move into integral is by, I think, first of all, doing what Obama did tonight, which was to articulate a strong uh, progressive agenda, an optimistic progressive agenda, you know, as the president, that gets laid on the table. That's important. And the Republicans now have to respond to that. 
And it's not like they have been sitting on their hands when it comes to this issue of inequality. I mean, the uh, leading Republican candidates, certainly the candidates for president, have all come out in one way or the other for an uh, inequality agenda. I mean, I would just want to pause there and, and note that that's true, that everybody's basically in agreement that this trend that we've been seeing where all of the gains in the economy go to the top one or two percent of the people is not tenable. It's not fair. It's not good. It's not healthy in terms of the civic space. And so what's interesting is that we are getting <laughs> a, a response from, you know, the right, the right has, you know, a solution to this. And it's less big government. It's more in terms of equality of opportunity. It's more private sector. All of that stuff, that's good. I'm laughing because I happened to look down and, and note a, a headline I'd cut out from the LA Times about poor Mitt Romney, who's, you know, trial ballooning that he might want to run a third time. And, and uh, you know, he's come out that he's, you know, one of his focuses in his new campaign, if he did run, would be fighting income inequality. And the headline is, Mitt Romney's new focus on poverty has many allies baffled. <laughs> uh, but good old Mitt, who he is, he is able to shapeshift. I'm not sure that doesn't mean he's integral. Integral is about flex flow. So maybe, I, I'm not sure that's not, um, you know, some evidence. I think I'll stop for now. And we do have some hands raised. Let's start with Mansoor. Mansoor, hello and welcome. Hello, yes. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Southern California, Irvine. Great. What do you have to uh, share? Basically, what I wanted to share that uh, on, as far as the uh, history of economy and all this, too, I believe that now we are uh, living in a digital era that is shifting everything to interconnected, interdependent system and is becoming nonlinear and subjected to faster changes. And each time, and we have, then we have an economy that is based on, is a gross, a stock market gross economy, a consuming gross economy, that each time we are going through this shift, uh, through this uh, cycles that is getting faster and faster, more money from the middle class and lower class going to the upper class. And since the middle class is the engine of this uh, consuming gross economy, is getting shrinking, and that's why, in, that's why, in general, the whole system having a cr chronic problems. Yeah. There is less people to buy the product that the, those people that they are at the top are producing. And yeah. that's uh, getting faster and faster, this uh, shrinking middle class. What we need to, I, I believe, to do is understand the nonlinear nature of this economy. And uh, because, as you know, all the living systems, uh, like Earth as a living system and us as a body as a living system, uh, they, they manifest themselves through nonlinear networks that they perform at the edge of chaos to become fractal 
and self-organizing. I think that's right. You know, in terms of actually visualizing the world uh, in what we would call the lower right, that is the systems of the cosmos as we know them, we know that orange, their highest ideal, or the modern, you know, scientific worldview, was that the world was a great clock where everything fit and everything worked together and, you know, one thing led to the other and um, it was all mechanical and made sense, logically. Uh, when we get to green, there's a quantum idea that there's, there's no one single perspective that uh, energy and matter can be interchangeable, that there's no single place to stand. And there's a, a great deconstruction of our worldview that happens in post-modernity. And then I think, and I think you're, you're actually onto this, Mansoor, that when we move to the integral stage of development, the sort of symbol or image that we want as of, is of a growing being, that the whole system, the whole world, not only just us as individuals, but the whole culture and the whole global culture is growing from infancy to babyhood to, you know, childhood to teenager to adult and to elder, all of them. And for the first time in history, we have significant uh, strata at all of those levels online. You know, for most of human history, you know, it was everybody was archaic or maybe there was some tribal and, and you know, there's a little bit of red. And then, you know, we, we there was two or three things in contest. Now, all of it's in contest at the same time. That's fine because we have the minds that can hold it and contain it. That's the integral mind. The integral mind is multi-perspectival. We can see through many eyes. And that's why I just was like, you know, I hate to say it, but I'll paraphrase Chris Matthews. I felt a thrill go up my leg. When Obama's at the end of the speech talking about moving from this perspective, see through these eyes, look at this person, I look through their eyes. I just think, oh my goodness, how lucky are we that he's the president of the United States? So thank you, Mansoor. Let's hear from MA. How are you doing tonight, MA? Hi, I'm doing well, Jeff. Uh, thank you. And I really loved Obama's speech tonight. I think it's one of the best speeches he's ever given, actually. I think he really hit a lot of things, um, uh, uh, the nails on the head, if you will. I, what really drew my attention uh, was his reference to international trade. Mm -hmm. If you remember, he said something like, um, you know, the chi China is... is uh, taking all that, basically all the jobs have gone there, all the investments have gone there, and they are writing the rules of international trade. Why don't we write the rules of international trade? And sort of, you know, people are, employers are dying to come back, let's create an uh, educated workforce, etc. My ears really pricked up because normally under circumstances uh, where a country is doing very well in international trade there will be they will tend to be a laissez-faire ideology as it was in england during the 19th century and certainly in the u.s um, during what you've called the orange regime mm -hmm. um, and and if a country tends to fall back they will tend to become actually protectionist go back to yeah. a traditionalist regime 
put up tariff barriers, uh, uh, protect the workers. But that's not what he was saying. What he kind of pointed to but did not develop was let's develop international, worldwide labor standards and environmental standards. In other words, let's level the playing field at a higher level and then let's do the international trade fight. I think yeah. this, is, this was actually on the agenda in the late 80s. I had some friends who worked with the World Trade Organization, but it never stuck back then. It'll be really yeah. interesting to see. I mean, this is a, you know, a tiny step towards world governance, a mm-hmm. tiny, tiny step. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, I think that world governance is happening de facto every day in the sense that we have so many international organizations, both in terms of uh, private organizations, companies, corporations, but also NGOs, various kinds of, well, the internet itself, where people are talking to each other and arguing with each other and fighting with each other and loving each other all over the world. And I think that a integral stage of trade policy will be one where, as you say, M&A, that we raise the floor uh, where all participating countries have certain, you know, basically what we were doing here in the 20s and 30s, where we were civilizing the workspace, where we were modernizing the workspace, which basically had come from an agrarian model where people worked from dawn till dusk. People work seven days a week. That's the agrarian model. Children worked. And so, you know, all of a sudden that's transferred whole into factories and mines and these horrible, you know, factories. And that's what's happening in the rest of the world. I mean, I actually think in many ways we're beyond that. So we want to raise the floor. And then we also want to be um, intelligent around when is free trade work and when is free trade not, and we want to be both, you know, the president of the United States is hired by a lot of non-world-centric people, (laughs) not to make the world a better place, but to make America a better place. And so they have to do that job because that's what their job description is. But you have Obama, who even at the very beginning of his speech, and I thought it was remarkable that we're not, I'm going to paraphrase it. I'm trying to find, I I made a note of it, but he talked about that we're trying not just to make a better, more secure country, but a better, more secure planet. And gosh, that is significant in and of itself, you know, in terms of, you know, displaying a world-centric view. And believe me, it does not go unnoticed when a president chooses those, that kind of language. Well, it's been a long night, a late night, and a good night, I think, for those uh, of us who are, and apparently most of us here are, good uh, Obama apologists. Uh, We have the poll that zero of you thought he did a a bad, super bad job, which would be a one. Three percent of you thought he did a moderately bad job. That's a two. Uh, And then the majority of you, 22 percent said he did really good. And that's a four. And 75% of you said he did great, like me. I'd give him a five, too. So keep the faith, people. I mean, we do have a president who is transmitting an integral fragrance and a vibe. And that is, you know, something to enjoy. 
and I think right on schedule, and I'm not sure we won't have uh, more to come. I, I'm not sure that anybody can get to that job, or at least in the, the long terms, in terms of averages, can reach the highest level of any world-centric organization, and the United States certainly is, uh, without having at least some good functional integral capacities. So I think we have that and better in Obama, and we have every reason to have a good smile tonight. What the hell? He did good. All right, everybody. We will check back in next Tuesday and um, move the ball, uh, making things integral. Uh, this is Jeff Salzman signing off. See you next Tuesday.